In its quest to provide an open forum for discussion of controversial issues, this station allows hosts and their guests to express themselves without any significant censorship. You're advised that any views expressed by the hosts or their guests are not necessarily the views of Tuggy Entertainment or its partners. Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney. Vivian is here to talk to you, to encourage you, and to show you how she had a successful homeschooling experience with her Wildflower Academy, and that her kids turned out great, and that with God's help, you can create the same experience she did. From her beginnings in Hostert, West Germany, to Dallas, it's been quite a journey, and her abilities to adapt, survive, and thrive are what make her unique in homeschooling. So have your pen and paper ready. It's The Sociable Homeschooler. And now, here's your host, Vivian McNinney. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before him, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. Mark 9, verses 2 through 3. Here is the classic mountaintop experience, the place we find ourselves when our prayer life and our mortal life seem inseparable, when everything's perfect. And we want to remain in this state for the rest of our lives. Peter speaks for us when he suggests setting up camp on the mountain. For, he says, it's it's good for us to be here. Some of our best and worst teachings come from this experience. Faithful acquaintances of mine believe that when everything's going right, things will inevitably start to go wrong. So they brace themselves for calamity and in the meantime, forget to enjoy the journey on the way to the mountaintop. Other, more realistic friends aspire to the mountain and enjoy the journey up and down as part of the highs and lows of life. No hidden meanings, no judgment, no self-fulfilling prophecies of doom and gloom. For me, the mountaintop is not commonplace. Like the joy C.S. Lewis experiences in Surprised by Joy, intangible, unexplainable, definitely not a tent-pitching sight, a place of fearful awe that can't be conjured up. It sweeps over us and vanishes in a cloud. Once we've experienced one mountaintop, we'll want another. Lewis says, our best havings are our wantings. Peter was with Jesus having a mountaintop experience to beat all mountaintop experiences, and all all he could think of was wanting to prolong it somehow. These faith-based highs will not be prolonged. In Lewis's words, joy is the serious business of heaven. Good morning and good afternoon. Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler. I'm your host, Vivian McNenny. My guest today is Robert Velardi, expert on the wisdom of Pixar. Yes, the film animators. Among other things, we'll be talking about Toy Story, Wall-E, and A Bug's Life. If you want to go travel with Buzz Lightyear to infinity and beyond, stay tuned for a most entertaining conversation. I'll be excerpting from my book, talking about our joint jaunt to the museum between toilet breaks, marveling at the connectivity of our far-flung family. And of course, we've been plunged into Lent this week. So a word or two about that. I'm drinking fizzy water at the moment because it feels good on the back of my throat, but you may need a hot cuppa. So pour yourself whatever helps you relax for an interesting hour in crisp daffodil-encased London. 
I also think I had one too many cups of tea this morning because my head is kind of spinning with all the caffeine. Well, all the tannin, whatever it is. Last week, we had my nephew for the day. He was all go, claiming to be bored when he was asked to wait for anything. Being experienced caregivers of four children of our own, we knew what to do. He'd spent the night with us and was up bright and early, so I managed a quick meet and greet with him in the kitchen at seven, where I poured him cereal and milk and left him with cartoons in the lounge while I hopped back to bed to do my devotions. An hour or so later, Later, his blue-eyed uncle made him pancakes with luscious syrup while I worked out, and then he knocked on the bedroom door for permission to go outside and play. That quick jaunt with the hydrangeas and compost heap took care of the final minutes before we deemed it a reasonable hour to make our way to the train station and into London and the British Museum. He was perfect on the platforms and worried about getting on the wrong train no matter how many times first I, then his uncle, then his cousin assured him we were on the platform where the train we wanted was due to arrive at any minute. On the walk to the museum, he decided he needed a toilet. So my cowboy traveller aspired a hotel and headed for it, knowing it would be clean, discreet and safe. As we were passing through the gates to the esteemed grand building of the museum, he wanted to know when we were going to have lunch. I had ammunition, for I knew he'd had two breakfasts and couldn't possibly be hungry. I told him he needed to wait until we were all ready to eat. Inside, we made our way to the mummies and found the toilets in the process, which had to be sampled several times, as it turned out. He was having a bit of a weak bladder problem, he promised us. I didn't know him well enough to argue. More like several more boredom attacks. We photographed and walked and searched and enjoyed in a very crowded place. It was half-term and lots of people had come up with the same diversion for their youngsters on their holidays. We found the Rosetta Stone and took a picture of that before the toilets were used one last time and we left. The museum had free admission, thank goodness. In a quick 90 minutes, the history of several continents had been quickly surfed as one would the net and signed off on in favour of a sandwich. Now, I'm going to read the last part of the chapter from my homeschooling chronicle entitled Pets, Pets and More Pets. I've decided that being the mother of the year could be taken a step further if I took a more active interest in the snake menagerie going on in our home. In addition to Monty the python, we acquired another four-foot ball python with the circumference of my forearm, and I'm no weakling. He made Monty look positively cute. I can't remember his name, but I do remember holding him. Yes, I trained myself to hold snakes because my son was so caught up in their world, I was curious as to why. I didn't want to shudder every time he came into my room with a snake adorning his body, draped around his neck or wrapped around his wrist a la Cleopatra. According to legend, I wanted to learn about his fascination for a creature that didn't bring out the maternal instinct in me, even in my wildest dreams. I held the big snake and it was all muscle. He curled up in my cupped hands, and I couldn't help enlikening this massive beast to a roly-poly. They both roll up like a ball when feelings of stress overwhelm them and can literally be rolled around. When I managed to entice it to uncurl, I felt its weight around my neck. A strange sensation, because it's not warm like a woolen scarf or a ferret. This large python liked his belly rubbed. Well, he didn't smile in appreciation or purr or anything like that, but the fact that he let me do it suggests his tolerance, at least. 
This is as far as I went in the care of the snakes in Simon's possession. The day-to-day, usually month-to-month care, was left to him. I used to clock him and his female entourage, collecting our red cooler from the garage and taking it into his bathroom. I didn't ask too many questions. He was 16, after all, and needed some privacy as he became more independent. If answer to, in answer to the questions... I didn't ask his young sisters. His, they would tell me knowledgeably that he was soaking his snake to help it shed its skin. I made a mental note not to use the cooler for ice when we threw our next party or for sandwiches when we went on one of our regular picnics and carried on with what I was doing regardless. This receptacle worked fine with the smaller Monty, but the large four-footers... Did I mention we had three pythons now? Needed a deeper, longer watering hole. So he took to soaking them in the bathtub. I know, makes my skin creep too. But he had to do it somewhere and the tub was a more controlled space than the swimming pool. I made sure the girl scrubbed the tub really well once the shedding was complete. Snake skin is a very interesting object to study. A complete shed has eye sockets, nostril holes, and an image of every scale left on it. But apart from putting it on display on a bedroom dresser until it collects enough dust to discolour it, there's not an awful lot can be done with a snakeskin. We never got into the bag-making business. That would require more than just the shed layer of skin and possibly include some kind of death... After a couple of years as the best mum in the world of homeschooling, I really was paying little or no attention to the activities of the snakes in my house. As long as I didn't find one in my bed, I was okay. Simon, who was supposed to be their primary carer, was spending a lot of time away from home as he'd been accepted at the community college and was following in Big Brother's footsteps and taking a couple of morning classes. One of his classes was weight training, which introduced him to the gym and muscle building and a general interest in his physique. He cut his waist-length hair and became much more serious about how he presented himself to the world outside his home. This was the boy who at four years old came to me complaining that there were other children in the park wanting to play with him, who at 12 refused to go to science co-op because he said I could teach him all he needed to know, and who never wanted to go to college because he thought it would be more fun if he and I took our Bachelor of Science together using a Harvard correspondence course. Now he was enjoying his professors, his fellow students, and his gym time. I thought his neglected snakes needed some tender, loving care. During my initial hours of curious observation, I'd never caught a snake in the act of eating, or should I say swallowing. I haplessly became a ringside spectator when they regurgitated their dinners one afternoon after I'd left them outside in the heat for too long. That calamitous day, the girls were at their science co-op. They were very social beings and jumped at any opportunity to get out of the house, especially now their hero was no longer around to worship. I decided the poor dumb animals needed an airing. The house was cool. The air outside was a good old Texas August warm. Although snakes are supposed to enjoy basking in the sun, these particular ones had grown used to the indoor controlled climate of about 80 degrees. Their sudden exposure to 100 degrees in the shade caused them to overheat, even though I had rigged up a canopy. 
I managed to eliminate two of them in one afternoon. I was horrified as I watched them rear up in agony, disgorge whole slimy mice, and then keel over dramatically. I brought them inside quickly, once again rapidly changing their temperature, but they'd perished. I had the idea I could just return them to my son's room and surround them with the rocks and sticks in their terrarium and leave them to be found, perhaps days later, by my very busy son. But I couldn't be dishonest. And besides, they looked as though they were in mid-parry, so it was obvious they didn't just die in their sleep and I wasn't going to rearrange their corpses. I was in a mad flat not knowing how I was going to break the news to my son. This was before email and text when I could have taken the coward's way out. I had no choice but to face him with the terrible truth. I braced myself for a tantrum, but all he did was shrug his shoulders. I was surprised at how unfazed he was. I think he was... He, too, was losing interest in the reptiles. Or it could have had something to do with the very playful presence of a six-week-old white kitten living with us. Whatever it was, I was spared his wrath. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Mark Lipinski is coming to Toginet. It's Creative Mojo with Mark Lipinski, a live two-hour show Wednesday afternoon starting at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. Creative Mojo. It's fun, entertaining, informative, inspirational, and illuminating. Lipinski has worked on such shows as Oprah, The View, The Joan Rivers Show, and Ricky Lake. He's busy, but he's got the drive to share with Creative Mojo, dedicated to the modern crafter and crafting lifestyle. Dive into the info and enjoy everything from celebs to entertainment news to recipes, quilting and needlework, knitting, painting, woodworking, Christmas crafts, and so much more. This show boldly encourages you to discover and harness your own creative spirit by living creatively every day. For more on Mark and the show, check out marklepinski.com. Don't miss the fun. It's Creative Mojo with Mark Lipinski. Wednesday afternoon, starting at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginet. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. 
My guest this week is Robert Velardi, who is the author of The Wisdom of Pixar, Conversations with C.S. Lewis, and The Heart of Narnia. Robert recently co-wrote with Sarita Holtzman of, Sun- of Sunlight fame, a new high school curriculum called What Good is Christianity? As well as author and prolific blogger, Robert is married, his children's teacher and mother. Like many homeschooling dads, he participates in their school life by focusing on the moving and performing arts portion of their curriculum, and I'm certain they love the fact that he shares their unbounded enthusiasm for all films Pixar. Robert has very cleverly turned this labor of love into an exercise in the reconciliation between a Christian's lifestyle and the world in which he finds himself today. He's also a philosopher, and it won't take you many moments to discover that he is a vibrant, interesting man on fire for the Lord. Welcome to my show, Robert. Thank you for having me on, Vivian. How are you? I'm doing quite well. Well, good, good. Well, um, as I said, you've, we have actually quite a few things that uh, I want to uh, talk with you today. And um, one of the first things, at the beginning of my show, I read um, a little bit from the Transfiguration verse um, that was at church, actually, this past Sunday um, in our church. And um, there's the talk of the mountaintop experience. And I know that in um, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis talks about an experience that he calls joy that is such an elusive experience. And I, I sometimes think that perhaps the mountaintop experience could be described in that same way. Um, what do you think? Well, I think so. I think if you, you look in the pages of Scripture, you find many times this longing or desire for some fulfillment that is, is nowhere to be found, really, except in God. I think you do have hints of that in Ecclesiastes. And, of course, in church history, you have, I think, Augustine said it well in Confessions. You know, uh, God, is, God has made us for himself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in him. And mm-hmm. certainly there are suggestions of that concept in Blaise Pascal, and then C.S. Lewis, of course, who also wrote much about joy. Uh, of course, his autobiography called Surprised by Joy. And just this longing or desire for something that, that is missing in this world unless we seek it in God. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and he, there were times when he was sort of encountered joy, um, and then all of a sudden he didn't again. For a, for a long, long time. It seems like it's, it's just one of those things that you're, you're almost there. It's like having a word on the tip of your tongue. You just can't, you know, you just can't grasp it. And then it goes. Then that feel, you know you're close to it, and then it just goes again. And it's so frustrating sometimes, isn't it? Right. Well, for Lewis, that was part of the, the drive for him to, that eventually led him to Christ and to Christianity, was this mm-hmm. elusiveness of joy, that he could catch only glimpses of it, whether it was in art or in music or for Lewis, much of it in literature that he read. And you'll mm-hmm. see this, this desire in Lewis to, to actually search and, and try to find this joy. I think in one of his earliest uh, Christian works, The Pilgrim's Regress, you see that throughout, where the main character struggles to pursue this joy that continues to evade him. And Lewis ultimately, of course, discovered that, well, there's nothing on this earth that can satisfy my desire. It, it can only be satisfied by God. And do you think that um, maybe the mystics or hermits or the desert fathers, do you think they, they ever lived in that joy? Do you think you can ever get to that point where you're actually there on earth and you can just bask in it? I think there are certainly some Christian uh, people who are 
or closer or experience that joy more often, I think their their desire to spend more time with God in, in His Word, to seek Him regularly. And, of course, that's something very difficult for us to do in our modern age. We have so many distractions. You know, we've got the Internet, we've got television, we've got radio, we've got uh, portable gadgets that we can do things with. And I think the amount of distraction, uh, the level of it has certainly gone up over the centuries and making it difficult, I think, for some of us with our daily busy lives to focus on what God would what would have us focus on, which is Him. Him. Mm. Mm, absolutely. Well, it's a, it's it's. Uh, I sometimes I think, oh, you know, I'm I'm almost there, and then you you something happens, and it just I don't really know how to describe it. It's, it's like somebody draws a curtain, or or a light goes out, or something, and you go oh, missed it again. And you know, I think the harder you try, the the harder it is. And you know, Lewis says. What he, he says that our best havings are our wantings, you know, and, and, and when you get it, then the, it's all gone again. And, and you know, there's this, you, the desire is better than the actual fulfillment of, except, of course, when we die and we're actually with God in eternity. I can't imagine anything better than that. So, um, okay. Well, you talk about um, virtue, finding virtue in, um, some of the films that, um, are out on the, on circuit and how I know there are Christian groups who will, um, critique a lot of the films so that, um, especially homeschooling families can determine whether or not they want to even watch them to screen them before they allow their children to watch them. And, um, I can remember at church during a Sunday school session, we, we did some of this looking at films and we, we'd look at segments out of films and we'd analyze them. And it was very interesting. It, it's sort of, it's, you're no longer a passive spectator just watching the movie. You're just, you're watching it trying to, trying to, you know, sort of find redeeming qualities maybe in some of these, these films that are out there. Um, and you do this, uh, with, with younger, um, with with movies that are um, directed towards a younger audience, although they're absolutely delightful for the adults to watch as well. So, um, could you tell us a little bit about how you became involved in doing that? Well, certainly. Well, one of my my concepts uh, as a philosopher is that film and television are what I call the new literature. Uh, that does not mean to say that people don't read anymore. I think people read less. But as far as the daily influx of people's influence and what they are familiar with is uh, really shifting from a culture of, you know, have you read to a culture of have you seen. And this is something that has been going on for, for decades. If you go back to Neil Postman in the, in the 1980s, uh, wrote about uh, this, this shift from an you know, age of exposition or reading to an age of show business or entertainment. And I think as Christians, we have a responsibility to try to understand that and evaluate it and equip our young people to be able to interact with what is occurring. Now, I selected Pixar because I'm a, a great fan of their film since uh, 1995 when they came out with their first movie, Toy Story. I have four children of my own who all love these movies, and I thought, you know, isn't there a, a, a thread in these films, something that recurs, that makes them so fascinating and engaging, and I found that there was. There's, there's this thread of virtue, many of these virtues based in classic Christian virtues, and how can we look at these Pixar movies and draw out some wonderful ideas and lessons from them? 
And um, you said you talked about virtues based in classic Christian virtues. Okay. Some, I was thinking that some of these films are, I'm sure, not, not deliberately being made to portray Christian virtues. So I know C.S. Lewis has, has, uh, writes about how we naturally know um, what's wrong and what's right. And, and you know, we, we, we're naturally, we have this, this ability to know when we're being virtuous and when we're not. Um, so these films are probably made by um, people who are not Christians. I'm not talking about Pixar. I don't know for sure. Um, but we can still find those virtues, those, those Christian virtues in them, even though they weren't deliberately made for that. That's true, and I think there's a few explanations for that. In some cases, there are Christians involved in developing these films, and I think their Christian virtues naturally come out. Their, their worldview, in other words, is, uh, infuses their art. And I think in other cases, it's an example of the tremendous Christian influence, uh, Judeo-Christian influence on Western culture, how a lot of our ideals, foundational ideals, morally speaking, are really uh, owed to the influence of Judeo-Christian values and how they have infused themselves in every aspect of our culture. Even though our contemporary culture might reject or even attack those ideals, in order to even reject or attack them, they have to have those ideals to do that. They're sort of uh, ingrained in, in, in culture. So there's certainly that aspect as well. There is the Lewis aspect that he wrote much about, this sort of natural law uh, infusing humanity, this sort of Romans 2 ideal that uh, God's laws are written on the heart, as it says. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I, I believe a lot of what um, we see um, transpiring in the world today, you know, I... I People are doing things without fully understanding or realizing what they're doing. And um, it's because God's imprint is is here on the earth and it really can't be denied. And even when you look at, um, you know, New Age and um, other Eastern um, meditational type cultures, some of their some of their teachings and some of their philosophy is just so wonderful that i think if it was in you could embrace it as a christian and enhance your christian life and there's there's really not a lot wrong with that or do you see that there are some pitfalls that we could fall into well certainly i think there's always pitfalls you know we have the admonition in first thessalonians five twenty one to test all things and hold on to the good but if you look at uh, thinkers uh, such as francis schaefer uh, you do have this concept mm-hmm. that he promoted that other worldviews often borrow capital from the Christian worldview. In other words, uh, even atheism, uh, atheists that have a moral basis in their lives, must borrow that moral basis from Christianity. Uh, otherwise, they don't have a good foundation for it. And I think in, in other religions, Eastern religions as well, you have a lot of this borrowing going on where uh, there might be, for instance, a denial of, of personality and uh, hence love in Eastern religious thought, you know, certain pantheistic forms. And yet uh, there's often uh, speaking in, in that religion, in those ideals of uh, personality, God as personal or love as being real. Yet if you examine those worldviews, they don't have a really good foundation for supporting that. 
It's Christianity that really provides the backbone, so to speak, for a lot of the virtues and a lot of the good that is in the world. Hmm. Well, um, Robert, we have to go on a small, on a short break. We've been talking about um, the Judeo influence on our culture. And um, go get yourself a cuppa and come right back. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Renowned and gifted psychic medium, Sylvia Rossi, explores the mysteries of this life, the afterlife, and the unseen world that surrounds us all in the show called Make Contact with Sylvia Rossi, Wednesdays at 2, 1 p.m. Central here on Toginet. Sylvia Rossi with her special guests and other fellow psychics invite you to call in and make contact with the world beyond and get answers to your questions. Psychic medium Sylvia Rossi has been sharing her gift professionally for the last 17 years. Sylvia has made it her mission to help individuals and families understand their eternal connection to loved ones that have passed on, bringing relief and comfort to countless souls who have been touched by her gift. She's had the privilege of meeting and working with many psychologists who continue to recommend their clients to her when conventional methods have failed. Now it's your turn to make contact with host and psychic medium, Sylvia Rossi. Wednesdays at 2, 1 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. If you're ready for a big change in your work, your career, your happiness, your life, it's time for the Million Dollar Mindset with Marla Tabaka. Monday afternoons at 2, 1 Central on Toginet.com. Marla believes that with the right mindset, anything is possible. Join us as successful life coach Marla Tabaka inspires you and her clients to explore, discover, and live your dreams by developing what she calls the million-dollar mindset. Marla will inspire you to take action on your dreams and reveal secrets to success that will help you realize your own unique power. Tune into the million-dollar mindset for heartwarming stories with Marla Tabaka. Learn tips and tricks to building a successful business and unlock the secrets to creating a happier, more balanced life through abundant thinking and attraction power. For more information on the Million Dollar Mindset, go to our website, MarlaTabaka.com. That's M-A-R-L-A-T-A-B-A-K-A.com. It's the Million Dollar Mindset with Marla Tabaka. Monday afternoons at 2, 1 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenny. Um, I went to one of your um, websites about, I think it was about Pixar, it's the wisdom of Pixar, and um, you talked about how we could handle living in our current world because you know everything that god has created is good and the fact that we have minds that can develop some fantastic technology is good also and the fact that scientists are you know delving deeper and deeper into um the where whys and wherefores of our world is fantastic for all of us um so you talk about embracing 
well, entrenching first off, embracing and engaging. We talked a little bit about engaging, how we can how we can look at films and and um, find some Christian virtues in the films. Um, let's talk about the other two a little bit, entrench and embrace. Um, what do, what what do you mean by those? Well, certainly, I see these three primary threads in response to culture from Christian circles, and. You know, certainly the, the first one would be that I, I touch on is, is that we tend to, in some Christian circles, entrench ourselves. That is, we stay in the Christian subculture. Uh, we, we stay within, say, uh, you know, our church attendance or Christian books or Christian music. You know, all this, these uh, items that uh, we consume as consumers, some of them, you know, come from the Christian subculture. And the entrenched mindset tends to... Uh, stress the separation of Christians from anything in the world that sort of smacks of, of pop culture, you know, choosing instead this marked separation from it. And I think in some cases, certainly, we do want to separate ourselves from the culture and show ourselves as distinct. Uh, but, you know, going overboard, so to speak, on entrenching ourselves, I think, closes our eyes to the reality of the world around us and how God might want us to impact it. Mm-hmm. So if you look at, at Christ as an example you know, he did not take his followers and say, let's all go huddle together in the desert and separate ourselves completely from culture. You know, he engaged the people of the day, the ideas of the day. He was out involved. And I think another option, which is sort of the opposite of the entrench, is this embrace option, where we see Christians sort of uncritically celebrating uh, sort of the, the what they view as the wonders or positive opportunities within culture. And I think that's good to a certain extent as well. But I think a more balanced approach is certainly engaging culture thoughtfully and, uh, you know, being able to evaluate it. Um, I think some homeschoolers may be accused of entrenching, and I think people that don't thoroughly know about the homeschooling movement may look, and that might be one of our stereotypes as a homeschooler, and so we're stereotyped in a particular way, and that could be one of the ways that we won't let anything else in. Well, I think that's one of the misconceptions, of course, of homeschoolers. You know, as a homeschooling father myself of four children, you know, that there are, you know, relatives or others who might say, well, you, your children aren't being being socialized. You know, that's one of the big things, and it's like... Mm-hmm. Well, well, certainly they are. You know, it, it all depends on the, the parent or parents involved in the homeschooling. And are your children being isolated or are they engaging ideas thoughtfully? And that can happen certainly through literature, through films that they might watch, and also just getting children out into the world to see what it's like. A lot of times, you know, meaning well as homeschooling parents, we want to shelter and protect our children. And yet, when they grow up and they move out and they face the world, if they are not adequately adequately equipped to engage these ideas, uh, they're going to have a very hard time in the world. I think there there's a certain amount of balance there as a parent. And, you know, going back to Pixar here, one of the things I love about their film Finding Nemo is the emphasis on family. And this parent, uh, Marlon, of course, seeking his son Nemo, who has uh, uh, disappeared and there's this balance of uh, Marlon has to learn of being too overly protective as a parent, uh, but also he doesn't want to be too free and in, in allowing the, the child to do whatever they want. There's a certain balance we need to have there as homeschooling parents or parents in general that will allow our children to explore the world but also be equipped to engage it thoughtfully. Mm. 
Mm. You know, when I think of um, when I, when I think of pulling in um, other things other than Christian literature and, and and Christian thought, maybe into my homeschool, it's usually literature. It's usually um, going back to you know Aristotle and Plato and, and pre pre Christian um, literature, and um, I I just I I don't find there's anything. Um, wrong with taking some of those jewels of, of teaching and um, working them into our um, Christian thinking, whereas other people who were in my homeschool group wouldn't even go near some of those wonderful old um, good books, fabulous books. And um, I, I just, but I, I think the sheltering of children from for me, we, we sheltered our children from the, the the violent, unwholesome side of life, and really some of those some of those older books I would not call either violent or unwholesome. And so, you know, there is a difference between you know we shelter in one way. I definitely shelter because some you know the Bible says you know everything think about or think about only good and. Um, you know, sort of wholesome things. Don't fill your mind with these horrible images. Well, I think that's a, a certainly a good point. I, I know that uh, in my home we value uh, not only classic literature but the different aspects of contemporary literature. And, of course, Sunlight Curriculum has a, v- a very focused emphasis on being literature-rich, so we don't mm. shy away from looking at literature and trying to draw out some wonderful ideas. Now, in the cases of thinkers such as Aristotle and Plato, you're dealing with some pre-Christian Greek thinkers, but it is amazing how much truth, in some respects, these individuals are able to grasp Mm. on the basis of what theologians call general revelation. That Mm. is uh, how God has revealed himself, uh, not only in human moral conscience, but through his creation. So, hence we have, you know, Psalm 19.1, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God, and we also have passages such as Romans 1.20, where we are told that uh, God has made himself clear in his creation. So I think in some respects, even non-Christian thinkers uh, have this ability to grasp certain truths from the reality around them. And mm-hmm. for us to just dismiss those ideas as Christians, I think, is uh, a little uh, you know, unfocused as to what we might be able to learn from some of these individuals. Um, you know, we are all made in God's image, the Imago Dei. We have the capacity to think creatively, to think intelligently, to be moral beings. And uh, we may not all have the full truth, but in many respects, some of these pre-Christian thinkers uh, that you mentioned, Aristotle and, and Plato, are able to grasp a great deal of, of what is true uh, and real in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I was thinking about... Um lost my train of thought and um we need to go on anyway to your book that you co-wrote with um sarita holtzman of sunlight curriculum and and i did say i can't remember if i introduced you as a a curriculum creator for sunlight but you've written a book with her called what good is christianity and you know 
living in England today, I look around at the young people and I look around. They're not only the young people anymore. It's I'm talking about people in their 30s and early 40s who just aren't church-based anymore. They they don't go to church. They look at you and say, "Well, why? Why do you go? Why are you going?" You know, it's just not it's not a not a given anymore. They're not passing it on to their children anymore. So, what good is Christianity? Um, I'm sh- I'm sure is a a wonderful piece of literature. Um, can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, sure. Well, what good is Christianity is something I worked on with, with as you mentioned, Sarita Holtzman, who is president of Sunlight Curriculum. And we put together an 18-week high school course that looks at a number of different topics in relation to Christianity and what good, so to speak, it has offered culture. So we look mm-hmm. at Christians' influ- influence on Western culture, on issues like social justice, education, literature, the fine arts. Uh, we look at science, and uh, we even look at uh, contemporary atheism, which is quite popular these days, these, these attacks on, on Christianity and religion in general. And we try to equip young people to be able to interact with a lot of these ideas, as well as know the incredible positive influence that Christianity has had on our world. Mm. So the book itself, is it available to anybody who um, does not um, p- participate with the Sunlight curriculum, or is it just something that's exclusively Sunlight? Well, it's available through sunlight.com, and mm-hmm. it is an elective, so it, it's an optional tool for high school students to use. Uh, it the, the book itself is an, what we call an instructor's guide, so it covers the 18 weeks of the curriculum we've prepared. And mm-hmm. much of it is, is built around books that we've incorporated into the curriculum. Uh, mm-hmm. These include books like Art and the Bible by Francis Schaeffer, What's So Great About Christianity by Dinesh D'Souza, How Christianity Changed the World by Alvin Schmidt, and some other materials. We have a DVD series called The True You, Does God Exist? Uh, question. And we write a number of notes about the issues brought up in these books that help young people think through these ideas. We ask a lot of questions. You know, one of Sunlight's goals is not to indoctrinate anyone, but to educate and to equip. So we want to have young people thinking through these ideas themselves, trying to evaluate, uh, trying as well just to understand different perspectives to be able to get a better handle not only on what they believe, but what other people believe. Hmm. Well, um, we're coming close to another break. For those of you just joining us, I am talking to Robert Velarde, author, educator, and philosopher, who serves as adjunct faculty member at Denver Seminary and is a curriculum creator for Sunlight. He's the father of four home-educated children, and he challenges us to take a closer look at our world before dismissing it or fully embracing it. So um, go get yourselves another whatever you need to keep you sustained for the rest of my show and come right back. And I think we'll be talking a little bit more about um, our world today compared to the world that um, um, our parents grew up in. And actually, in, um, I'm, I'm reading through Corinthians at the moment, and Corinth was a very corrupt um, town um, back in Paul's time. And so the issues they were dealing with 
and Paul was having to teach um, against are similar to the issues that we're dealing with um, today in our world. So I'll be interested to hear your um, response to that, Robert, when we come back. And here is the music. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Get ready to laugh along with This Little Parent Stayed Home with Allie Lopreet. Friday evenings at 6, 5 central on Togenet.com. This is a truly realistic, no-nonsense, tell-it-like-it-is method that will have you laughing and crying, surviving while struggling, and hammering away at the hardships as you travel through the greatest journey of your life. Get empowered by joining thousands of other parents who have also decided to take a leap of faith into a double career with longer hours and half the pay simply because of the love they have for their children. Together, we are rebuilding a new economy that will support us rather than enslave us. Never again will we have to choose between raising our children and earning to provide for them. It won't be easy, but it will be worth it. For more on Allie and her success, check out her website, OurMilkMoney.com. So come get empowered with This Little Parent Stayed Home with Allie Lopreet. Friday afternoons at 6, 5 Central on Toginet.com. I am not the woman I used to be. I'm free with Minister Diane Jones. Monday nights at 10, 9 central on Toginet. This is your chance, ladies, to hear stories of hope and healing from someone who's been there. Someone who has fought back from the horrors of incest. Minister Diane's innocence was stolen from her in the land of alcoholism and mental illness, which led to her being emotionally, physically, and sexually abused by her parents. Yet in spite of this trauma, she has gone on to become a successful wife, mother, registered nurse, and minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not the woman I used to be. I'm free is a straight-up show to enlighten you and to lighten your load. Do not let the weight of this world or the things that have happened to you control your life. For more on the show and Diane and her book, The Story of Me, email her directly from her show page here on Toginet. Then, join us for I'm Not the Woman I Used to Be. I'm free with Minister Diane Jones. Monday nights at 10, 9 central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. Well, Robert, I'm sure you think the same way very much as a parent. Um, we, we go, oh, you know, when we were younger, the times were so much simpler and, and there wasn't so much out there that our children could get in trouble with. But, of course, that we had our own set of problems. And as I was saying before we went on break, that um, Paul had to deal with a lot of problems going on in Corinth and other parts of, of the world in which he um, was taking the good news. So... Um, what do you do you agree with that do you think that every every generation or every century or every decade has its own set of problems and those back hundreds of years ago were every bit as bad as what we're facing today well, i think every every age every culture every time period that the church has gone through has faced its own unique set of challenges 
I think, uh, in general, the, the principles, the biblical principles we have equip us to deal with whatever comes our way. You know, I mentioned earlier about the, the rise sort of, of, of contemporary distractions, the Internet, the, you know, all of the other technology that we are surrounded with can in some ways uh, distract us from concentrating on God and His truth. So that's certainly one challenge that we face. We have this sort of media-on-demand culture where, you know, people can be together in a room somewhere or traveling somewhere, and everyone is engaged in their own little life looking at their cell phone or their iPhone or whatever it might be, uh, not engaging people directly around them. So there is that challenge of, of the rise of sort of... Uh, what Neil Postman called technopoly, this, this technological age that is, is very different than what people may have uh, had to deal with a couple of hundred years ago or even less than that. Um, it's interesting you, you do mention Paul, though, because Paul, I think, is a wonderful example of how to engage culture and what's going on in it. You know, if you look at Paul's encounter in Athens in Acts 17, I think that's a wonderful example of someone being mm-hmm. intelligent and observing the culture around him and using that as a touch point, so to speak, to begin to be able to present the truth about God and the gospel. Mm-hmm. We did that as Christians. We we turned, you know, um, some of the pagan and druid festivals um, so that the people didn't have to change their culture and change their habit that much. Uh, We incorporated some of their culture and some of their habits into our Christian um, celebrations of Easter and, and, um, you know, incorporated into this celebration of spring and making it easier for the people to adapt and change. And I I, I think that's important. I think it's important um, for missionaries um, going overseas into completely different cultures to be aware of that and to be able to do that otherwise they will um, find rejection well I, I think that's true in many cases i don't know that uh, especially those of us who may have been raised in christian homes you know personally i was not i was an atheist and converted to christianity during my, my college years and mm-hmm. i think in in some respects we lose sight of the fact of of the radical shift and the, the significant change that needs to occur in people to very much turn their worldview upside down, so to speak, the way they see reality. And oftentimes that does not happen in an instant. It does not happen as, as a, a sudden change. It's an incremental progression where we sort of need to lead people down a, a progression, uh, a path that they need to follow till they are ready, for instance, to accept that, that Christ is the Son of God and rose from the dead, etc., um, you know, for someone, for instance, who's an atheist who doesn't even believe in God, uh, there's much work that needs to be done before they reach that place where they are, are ready to uh, to evaluate Christ and, and what his uh, claims are. Yes, and sometimes that can be a very daunting thought for um, somebody going out and meeting atheists or, or meeting people that have no idea about Christianity. But I think... Um, power to those people if they remember that just sowing a seed and opening a door a crack that's all god needs to be able to get in there and start the work you know and um so anybody out there who um thinks that maybe they can't do this um great work of evangelism and and witnessing 
do what you can. God will use whatever you can do. And uh, Paul, I mean, Paul, Paul was brilliant. In fact, you know, I have to say this, and we're we, we're running um, out of time. Um, reading some, you know, we'll talk about C.S. Lewis, reading C.S. Lewis, and sometimes I'll go back and I'll read something in Paul and I'll think, you know, Paul got it right then without all of these hundreds of years of teaching and thinking and theologian, you know, sort of discussions and, and you know, he had it, he, he got it. And it's just amazing because he's, he was saying the same thing that C.S. Lewis um, says after all of this work. And it's, it's just amazing how those first disciples really did in the end get it. I, I think so. And obviously they had the advantage of being first-hand witnesses to many of these things. And Paul, of course, with his Damascus Road encounter and his mm-hmm. great learning even before that that prepared him to be the uh, Christian missionary that he ended up being, and and thinker as well. And one thing I would like to add, too, is uh, this curriculum, What Good is Christianity? Uh, We have currently a group of homeschool moms going through this, writing about it regularly on our Sunlight Forums, and I think it's a fantastic resource as well, not just for our high school students, but for adults wanting to learn more about what they believe, why they believe it, the positive influence of Christianity on culture, uh, responses to contemporary atheism. I think there's much in there that uh, is is not just for high school students, in other words, but adults can gain a great deal of, of knowledge and be equipped to uh, interact with culture as a result of going through what good is Christianity. Oh, yes, I think we're so blessed as homeschooling parents because we can go back to those books and learn right alongside our children and pull so much more from them every age you know every every year there's more there's there's so many you know so much treasure to be gleaned from you know any book every book and you know robert our time this afternoon a morning for you early morning for you is um sadly over and i've really really enjoyed our our encounter together um i've been chatting to robert Velardi, author of the wisdom of pixar conversations with c.s lewis and the heart of narnia most recently he's co-authored um a new high school curriculum called what good is christianity with sarita holtzman from sunlight he's the home educating father of his four children who share his passion for pixar movies what child wouldn't Robert looks at current films through Christian eyes and finds virtue in most of them, and he shared some of his insights with us today. And I hope you'll be encouraged to pop along to Amazon and buy his books, or Google him, Robert Velardi, to read more about his approach to Christianity today, and you'll find him on my Toginet um, front page, homepage. Thank you so much for joining us today, Robert. Um, have a terrific weekend. Well, you too. Thank you for having me on. You're welcome. Bye. Well, talking of films, uh, we went to the cinema yesterday and saw the new Tom Hanks film, Extremely Loud and Extremely Close. Well, actually, it's not those two words. And in fact, it's a terrible title because I can't remember it. Not, And it wasn't that good either. And it was too long. But in the spirit of what we've just been talking about, the upsides of the film were that Pierce Perseverance was taught, plus love and understanding and the quest to find out how to deal with difficult life situations. But one of the extraordinary characteristics about attending the 
the cinema in England is the ticket dispensing system. As I've mentioned, the seats are all reserved and the best ones, close to the back with reclining chairs and a few more feet of space, dominate the reduced size auditorium so that we get in to find that we're closer to the screen than we'd expected. And then there are all these seats behind us that we're not allowed to sit in, even if they remain unsold. Bizarre, but true. And purchasing the tickets is even more of a conundrum. To start with, the service is appalling, not the servers. They're usually very polite and helpful and chatty and unflappable. All adding to the problem, they appear to have no concept of people queuing, sometimes for 30 minutes for a couple of tickets. My barista daughter has often said that... um, her servers in in her coffee shop don't care how long they have their customers wait. They do one thing at a time, even though when Malia's on bar, she can clip the drinks out quickly. The server at the counter is still taking money, getting food, passing the time of day and generally taking her time. And no matter how long the line is, there appears to be no sense of urgency. And I'm reminded of faulty towers when customers were a bane rather than an asset. We usually arrive at the cinema a few minutes early and there's always a queue. Each customer is shown the seating chart of the cinema on the server's computer and they choose their seats. They're then asked endless questions about specials and do they have a premium card and if they don't they're given all the spiel about why they need one. Then we're given these tickets that are just a little paper receipt um, with lots of other bits of paper that go, you know, sort of give you a free drink or whatever. And an average transaction takes about five or six minutes. And we've discovered that when the lobby is full we can go into the um, concession area and buy our tickets but there's a further problem added to that because not only they're buying tickets there they're probably buying coffee or other things but yesterday when we went we had to go into the concessions area and everything was down all the computers were down their coffee machine was down and people were just waiting 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 in line and it took us 30 minutes to get our tickets every time the computer went down they had to boot it back up again and Oh, it was just horrible. All we needed were two tickets and it would have been so easy just to have a little guy at the door of the screen that we wanted to go in just with a little money bag just handing out our tickets and when we went in there were only seven people in there you know I suppose we could have snuck in but um, we didn't and my husband my blue-eyed cowboy is um, going in for shoulder surgery on Tuesday after all these months, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. He got a cancellation. Unfortunately, it's the day we had tickets to go and see Warhorse at the National Theatre. Malia and I are still going. We're trying to get rid of his one ticket because he said he wanted to come, but I said, nope, he's going to have general anesthesia, even though it's only day surgery. And um, anyway, so he's going to go and do that. And... Um, I guess they've got this something like a four-week recovery and he has to wear his arm in a sling for a whole week and not do anything. It's going to be difficult to stop him from doing anything. But on that note, uh, please say a prayer for successful surgery and a short recuperation on Tuesday. This weekend, we're going to look for a quick getaway to Europe after Easter. And um, nothing else. I'll take my leave. I'll be here same time, same place next week. So without further ado, I'll say thanks to my handsome husband who believes in love at first sight our four children who are a result of that belief. I miss you four in Texas. The hardworking staff at Toginet Radio have a great cruise. My guest, Robert Velarde, and you, my faithful listeners, Anne in Lindell, Hannah, Tina, Rosemary, and many others who are part of my growing audience. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord show you his kindness and have mercy on you. And may the Lord watch over you and give you peace. Doop, doop, doop. Doop,
Thank you for joining us for The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney on Total.